The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is a real honor to have with me Valerie Seagrest. She is a native nutrition educator who specializes in local and traditional foods. As an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian Tribe, she serves her community as the coordinator of the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project. In 2010, she co-authored a book titled Feeding the People, Feeding the Spirit, Revitalizing Northwest Coastal Indian Food Culture. Valerie received a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition from Bastyr University and a Master's Degree in Environment and Community from Antioch University. She was a fellow for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy and was recently the first Native to receive the King County Municipal League's Public Employee of the Year Award for 2015. Valerie inspires and enlightens others about the importance of a nutrient-dense diet through a simple, common-sense approach to eating. I had the pleasure of meeting Ms. Seacrest through our Kellogg Food and Society and Food and Community Fellowships, and I had the honor of being nourished by wild salmon prepared by her tribe members. Ms. Seacrest, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, I had the pleasure of watching a TEDx talk that you did. It was TEDx Rainier, in which you spoke about food sovereignty and tribal food sovereignty. And I wonder if we could just start our conversation with a little bit about how you see those terms and help our listeners understand those words. Well, first, food is a gift. And for the Coast Salish people, our traditional foods are our mental, physical, and spiritual medicine. And that means that when we are actively on the land in pursuit of wild game or fishing rivers or harvesting berries and medicines with good intention that we're gifted. We're gifted with memories, memories of a distant past and those present day. That action with the land is very reciprocal. So we see it as us intervening in a positive way and then being gifted with a memory that helps us to be settled in who we are and the lands that we come from, and the wealth of knowledge that we carry as a people. And that is the medicine that we're after in our modern-day world, especially for tribal communities, to be able to remember who we are and where we come from. It's our foods and our plants that we see as much more than just a commodity. We see them as our greatest teachers that hold us up in that place, that help settle us in a place of balance and generosity. So for us, our foods are, are who we are. They're a reflection of, of our own identity. Mm-hmm. And in your talk, you mentioned that centuries ago, the Native people of the Pacific Northwest had 300 different foods. So it was a very biodiverse diet. And you talk about now how the Western diet has limited consumption to maybe 13 to 20 different foods. That has to take a toll on our health. It takes a toll on our health because it's a lack of diversity of nutrients, and it also promotes this 
system where we're overburdening one food. The beauty of a really healthy and diverse ecosystem that contains, you know, over 300 different kinds of foods that were eaten here pre-contact. And that's from white cap to white cap, which is in a very, in some places, a really short stretch of land. It's quite amazing, just 50 miles from the sea shore to the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. Um, To have that amount of food in that stretch of land is, plus our seascape is just tremendous opportunity for our body to absorb a diversity of nutrients that help keep us in balance and rhythm of the seasons. Mm -hmm. So we can stand up stronger to changes in the weather, to changes in the environment as well. Right. I have to ask you to share the story that you told on TEDx Rainier about the Muckleshoot Orchard and the planting of the crabapple tree and what that meant to one of the people there. Oh, sure. With the Food Sovereignty Project, we do lots of activities and workshops in the tribe. And whenever we do these events, it's a traditional teaching to ask an elder to attend the event, and they aren't to do anything but to just witness the work that's happening. And this can be quite hard for our busy elders who like to keep their schedules full. So to have them sit and just observe what they see us doing, the action, and then to share a couple of words at the end of our event about what they've seen and uh, how it can be better. And a couple of years ago, we installed a fruit orchard at the Muckleshoot Tribal School and had several grade levels out in the garden planting native trees, native berries, some of the heirloom apples and pears, And when I arrived there, our esteemed elder was standing on top of a pile of wood chips just watching what was going on around her. And when she turned around and looked at me, she had these huge tears in her eyes and had said, I just spoke with this young man. He's a fifth grader. And he came up to me and was so excited that he had planted this crabapple tree. And as he was planting it, he learned that this tree would live to be over 200 years old if it were taken care of properly. And he said to me, this means it will be feeding people long after I'm here. And she started crying at that point and said, I understand the importance of this work. And that to me was such a tremendous opportunity. And the opportunity that exists when we're out with our hands in the dirt, getting to know a plant, getting to know the land, having all the elements there for community to be there because we don't do this work alone and the immense learning that happens, the just tremendous opportunity that happens when you are active in your food system and how you learn about being a citizen and how you learn about people who have yet to come and how we are responsible for taking care of them and that this young man was able to experience that by just getting to know a plant yeah, and then share it with his elder. Like That to me is that's intergenerational teaching that goes both ways with both humans and non-humans, and that's so beautiful. Yeah, that is a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you join us today is because of the Food and Drug Administration's decision to approve genetically engineered salmon. And salmon is what we consider to be a cultural keystone species of the Northwest Indian peoples. And by genetically engineering this fish, And for FDA to approve it without consulting with tribes, 
on an issue that is really a direct attack on your cultural identity, your social fabric, your economic lifestyle, and our health system, I think needs to be brought to the table for discussion. So tell me a little bit about the tribal opinion about genetically engineered salmon and why it is so detrimental. Well, when I presented, I actually presented a resolution to oppose the production of GE salmon to my tribal council, the Muckleshoot Tribal Council, and I did it in partnership with a woman from the Navajo tribe. She's a policy analyst and came and shared her story about sacred corn because the same thing has happened to several tribes across Indian country who also, for them, their their keystone plant species is corn. It's a sacred food to them. And we know that that is a massively genetically engineered crop. So for her to tell her story, and then I presented the potential decision being made on this genetically engineered salmon, it was a unanimous decision of my tribal council, my leadership here, to oppose the production of this horrific fish. And then from there, we moved it to the affiliated tribes of the Northwest Indian, which represents the entire Northwest region. And the resolution passed really quickly there. And that opened the door for us to bring it to the National Congress of American Indian, where it was passed last June in Anchorage, Alaska, at their annual meeting very, very quickly. It was also passed. So the entire National Congress of American Indian is now on board, has been for over a year. And the FDA is federally mandated to speak to tribes, and that has not happened. They're federally mandated to speak to tribes, especially on issues that pertain to us. And for an entire nation of people who have organized their lives around salmon and have had successful productive fishery for over 10,000 years, and our DNA is built on the backs of the Chinook Pacific salmon, for that gene to now be owned by a transnational corporation is a direct attack on our cultural identity and our cultural and intellectual property rights. Yeah. So do you think that there's any room for revoking this decision of approval for these fish based on what I see as a violation of the agreement between the government and the tribal nations? I'm hoping that there's an opportunity there for some sort of congressional fix to happen. We're performing triage at this point, trying to figure out what do you do when you've been completely overlooked and probably very intentionally. We're trying to mobilize ourselves in a way to figure out how we can do this and stop it from happening because its potential for causing damage is damage that's irreversible. And there are a lot of questions that tribes are sitting with right now with the decision for this to move forward. So I'm hopeful, and I also, you know, as a nutritionist, I I don't really know where we sit. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully, at the very least, we can insist on labeling so that consumers can reject it. So that's certainly an action step for all of us listening to this story to take, is to contact our representatives and senators and let them know that we have got to have mandatory genetic engineering labeling on our foods. Not voluntary, but mandatory. Now, I want to go back a little bit to talk about the 2013. During that time, the Muckleshoot tribe passed a resolution opposing the production of GE salmon. I want you to explain the heart of that opposition, 
Was it a food safety issue? Was it the fact that the transnational corporation was going to be owning a species? Tell me where the conflict arose for you. There are so many different levels. You know, the first would be that tribes have a treaty right. It's something that we have traded land for, the access to this fish until time ceases to exist, because we know that when these fish cease to exist, and so do we as a people. That is our teachings, our oral traditions tell us this, that we may move and breathe on this land, but we're nobody without our salmon, without our berries, without our cedar trees. So we have an obligation to protect and be an ally to our greatest teacher, the the salmon nation. It's also tribes bear the burden of conservation, to be quite honest. We are one of the very rigorous hatchery work to maintain wild stocks. And our tribe alone puts millions and millions of dollars towards that conservation effort, something to the equivalent of like a third of what the state puts in, just our tribe alone. And there's 29 tribes in the state of Washington. So we have a lot of vested interest in this. Not only that, beyond that, our tribal fishermen, people who make a living, it's hard to have a job doing what your ancestors did in a modern world. And fishing is one of those careers that you can take on, but it's getting harder and harder every year to be a fisherman. And we're now dealing with displaced fishermen who have a higher suicide rate because they're no longer able to do what they love. The sobering reality is, you know, my elders talk about a time when the salmon were so abundant when they'd return to rivers, you could walk across the back of salmon to get across the river. And now the sobering reality is pulling maybe 10 out of a net during the height of the season. So our stocks are diminishing already. The economic implications on a career that's culturally appropriate for us is threatened. And then you have health disparities in general that tribes are facing on a daily basis, higher rates of diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and that food is our medicine. That salmon in its rich nutrition and nourishment is what we use and what we absolutely need to heal our bodies. Now, if we're getting a salmon that's a lesser quality, then that's just going to perpetuate more sickness in our communities. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Valerie Seagrest. She is a native nutrition educator who specializes in local and traditional foods. She is a member of the Muckleshoot Indian Tribe, and she serves her community as the coordinator of the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project. Ms. Seagrest, I want to talk a little more about the nutritional value and the loss of that value when we farm fish and what that does to the larger environment. It's my understanding that these genetically engineered fish will be raised in pens, they'll be farmed fish, and their food is not going to be the same as the wild salmon. I'm concerned about the fish that are engineered getting out into the wild and the impact on the wild population. And then, of course, I'm also concerned about the nutritional value of these fish. It's being marketed as being just as good, but I'm not so sure. I absolutely agree. There's something really important about a salmon that hatches from a river, journeys out to the sea, tonifies its body, gathers minerals and nutrients from the oceans, 
and then returns from his odyssey to its ancestral river and gives its life for us to have life and for some frankenfish engineered in a lab to be, you know, eggs hatched in Prince Edward, Canada, and then shipped down to Panama to be fully grown in a facility that's being fined for its practices of poor waste management is very alarming. And then to take the position that this is supposed to be more food secure is really puzzling to me. I find that very confusing. They're also finding that this fish produces more omega-6 fatty acids than omega-3s, and we know that that's medicine of salmon. We already inundate our bodies with too much omega-6 from other proteins that we eat. So the very reason why people are trying to eat healthier and go to the store and purchase a salmon that might be more affordable, that argument doesn't match up to me. It doesn't make sense at all. Right. And then the environment in which the fish are raised, being raised in pens, it's my understanding that the food that they're being fed, of course, influences the level of omega-6 and omega-3 in the fish tissue. It's not the natural diet. Exactly. And above all of this, you know, I think the most alarming thing when we're speaking about tribal communities is that we also have a policy that we operate from, and it's the laws of nature. You know, that this wouldn't happen in nature. A Chinook salmon would not breed with an eel fish and breed with an Atlantic salmon and then produce some sort of fast-growing fish. That just doesn't happen in nature. So it violates the very laws that we operate by as well. Mm -hmm. So what are the next steps for those of us who don't want this kind of food being produced? What can we do to join with you to help prevent it from coming onto the market Perhaps if people don't buy it, it will go away. I always hope that the market will help, you know, create some sort of justice, but I'm worried about that. I am too, and several large retailers have said that they will not sell it. I guess that is, you know, I would charge people to go to their congressmen, tell this story, talk about how important this is, the irreversible damage, the possibility of unintended consequences that are involved And those implications can be greatly disruptive to the future of our food system and our children and our grandchildren, who I hope that my daughters will be able to fish like their ancestors did and eat the same DNA that our ancestors did. That's what they traded land for us to inherit, was the the flavor and relationship with that beautiful species that's built our entire culture for thousands and thousands of years since time began for the Coast Salish people. So I would ask people to to tell this story, talk about how important it is, how it, it is all of ours to worry about, and do not buy genetically engineered salmon Yeah. if they end up labeling it, and go to grocery stores and ask them to not sell it either. Right. And thank those grocery stores who have already agreed that they will not sell it. I know there is in the Midwest, the Hy-Vee chain, the supermarkets here have agreed not to sell it. I believe Costco is one. Are there others that you are aware of? I've heard Kroger's and Safeway, Costco and Whole Foods. Those are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head. Right. And I think that when we call our representatives, the National Congress of American Indians, your resolution addressing this this issue. It's titled Opposing the Introduction of Genetically Engineered Salmon. 
is a very well-written piece, and I'll share the link to that so that our listeners can find out exactly why we're concerned. And I just want to bring out one part of this resolution, actually, that I think is very concerning, and that is the fact that should the genetically engineered salmon escape into the wild, those genetically engineered salmon could adversely affect the wild salmon upon which the native people are dependent. So at a minimum, we're finding that these engineered salmon could compete with the wild salmon for food and rearing locations, and then with inbreeding with the wild fish could result in the expiration of wild salmon. So are there studies that have ruled out some of these adverse effects, or are we just opening up Pandora's box? We're opening up Pandora's box. No environmental impact study has been done on this. No environmental impact study has been done, but we're approving this food to come into our food system. Exactly. How is that legal? It's not. Well, I don't know. And we want to be careful about that, too. An environmental impact study is going to open up the floodgates here. We would want it to be a very in-depth, thorough, holistic study and not just something to check off a box, Right. basically. It's my understanding that environmental groups in Canada are filing lawsuits based on that alone. Good. And if we want to learn more about this topic, is there an organization that has taken it under its wing in addition to the Native tribal documents that we can share? Friends of the Earth has a webpage, gefreeseafood.org, and the Center for Food Safety has also been running tests and has some really great visuals and information on their website as well about frankenfish. Okay. Right now, if people are in the market, how would they be able to identify this fish? Is there a brand name we should be looking for? Not that I know of. It's not in the market yet. They're assuming it will be out by mid-next year, and I'm not sure what it will be labeled I'm, I'm, but I'm, I was always taught in school by my wonderful teachers that a food will have something to brag about, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would be labeled wild salmon, and that's the kind of fish you might want to purchase. Um, and you can always make a good relationship with your fishmonger and ask them what they know about this product and where it comes from specifically. And it's good. It's good to get to know your butcher behind the counter there, you know, and talk to the fish person. They have a lot of knowledge that's sort of untapped back there. Yeah. And in terms of the individual states in the Pacific Northwest specifically, we've got Alaska, we've got Washington, Oregon. Do you see representatives from those three states being helpful in this process of restriction? Absolutely. Yes. Overnight, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska is having a real strong reaction to this. And so is, in Washington State, Maria Cantwell. So I see our leaders making moves and trying to include this in an omnibus to make labeling mandatory because they see how it is going to directly affect the communities that they represent, not just tribal communities, but a broader public that also has an identity wrapped around, um, you know, that you come to the Pacific Northwest and you eat salmon. That's what you do. So for it to be moved forward without consideration of the impact it would have on a cultural food for everybody is a shame. It's really a shame on the FDA. 
Yeah. And, you know, what's also a shame is that we've already seen this new normal where we see the destruction of habitats and we see a decline in water quality, and that's already affecting our fish populations. What is it going to mean if we have this new genetically engineered fish put into the mix? Absolutely. It's an excuse. It's an excuse to not clean up our mess anymore, which is ultimately the mess that our grandchildren get to inherit. So it's our responsibility to pick up after ourselves. Yeah. And this is just another excuse to put that off. Mm-hmm. As a member of the Muckleshoot tribe, would you in the last couple of minutes just share with us a little bit about why you came to this work and, again, what food culture means to you? Well, for me, I wasn't born and raised in Muckleshoot. My mother was a foster child. At six months of age, she was taken from her family and given up for adoption to a wonderful non-Native family that we were raised by, but we never knew where we came from or what tribe we belonged to until about 12 years ago when she took a job working for a homeless shelter for Native American people in downtown Seattle and found her father there. He was a, a member of the club, and he informed her that she was Muckleshoot and that he'd been writing letters to her her entire life and sending them to the Muckleshoot tribe. And so my mother and myself and my brother all came down and got enrolled overnight. And for us, it was like coming from a foster family and not having an identity overnight, having an entire community that you belong to is just a spiritual awakening. And for me to understand more about my community And my lineage, I started working with the elders program here in Muckleshoot, and my job was to take elders to doctor's appointments every day, and I started noticing this trend of them telling me how much they hated taking pills and pharmaceuticals, and how they believed that if they ate their traditional foods, not only would they prevent sickness, but they could cure their sickness, but that there were so many challenges in our modern lifestyle of eating these traditional foods. And they would tell me about an auntie of mine who lived to be 108 years old. Her name is Ollie Purcell, and she just passed away about a decade ago. So this is within our lifetime that people were living to be well over 100, and that her claim to fame was cod liver oil and traditional foods, and that when you came to her house, she would sit down and make you eat our native foods because she wanted people to feel good and medicine from those foods. And so... That is what drove me to go to medical school and get my degree in nutrition. But to be able to speak scientific language, to put that food justice and social justice piece on things, and that truly that is the nourishment people are looking for beyond, of course, a well-balanced diet, but access to a well-balanced diet and the spiritual connection and identity that's wrapped up around the food that we eat that when we can better articulate those things and take care of them and not be just a consumer but also a citizen, then we are able to experience true nourishment. And that, to me, is what, when I read my treaty and when I read and hear our traditional stories and spend time out in nature, fishing, hunting, harvesting, preparing, cooking, and sharing all of those foods with people, that's the medicine that I want to feel and that I want everybody to to understand and experience for themselves as well. Well, Ms. Seacrest, that was 
such a beautiful summation of your work and your your life and how you got here, and I greatly appreciate hearing it. I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, I want to thank you so much. We've been speaking with Valerie Segrest, Native Nutrition Educator and Muckleshoot Tribal Member. Thank you. <laughs>